Again, what a privilege it is. Um, you can just see the manifestation of the Spirit in the frontier. Helmets playing like a metallic rock drummer. <laughs> a proper metallic rock drummer, but still. Just what a wonderful time of worship and just sensing the Holy Spirit just wooing us deeper and deeper. Just to almost like get to a place where we just, nothing else really matters. In the words of Metallica, nothing really matters. <laughs> Who would have thought? But there's such a, a, such a wonderful, wonderful, it's like you could just want to stay here the whole day, you know? So, obviously, Sean and Neen are being ordained tonight, and um, I, I just felt to give them a word. And I remember about two or three years ago, Sean and Neen launched their first album, and the title of the album was Restoring the Magnificence. And really what he was wanting to say was that there is a magnificence about the church that has been lost, and that God is restoring that to his church this beautiful thing called the bride. He's restoring the magnificence to the church. You know, the history is filled with outpourings of the Holy Spirit where things that were lost to the church were gained again. There was, and, and, and almost like then you have, these, um, you have these flows that start, you know, these denominations, Presbyterians, and, and all of those were characterized by massive outpourings of the Holy Spirit. And I really feel like that the title of his song is a prophetic declaration for what the Lord is doing in the earth now. Because the church, the church is in need of restoration. It's, just, it's in, in need of restoring the magnificence. And there's a scripture in 2 Kings 22 where King Josiah, um, he's, he's the king and he doesn't really know better. He, he's just being as good a king as he possibly can. And while they're cleaning out the archives in the temple, they come across this book and it's the book of the law. Dusty. And they bring it before the king and he says, now let's read this book. And they start reading the book. And as he reads the book, as they read the book, he comes to the conclusion that they're not living in the glory that God wanted them to live. And he, he tears his clothes and he gives instruction. No, we need, to, we need to almost reform. We need to bring ourselves in line with this book, this book of the law. And as a, as a result, there's this massive reformation that takes place in, um, in Israel, and I feel that that's what the Lord is doing, is he's, he's pouring out a fresh revelation to restore the church, this beautiful bride, to its former glory and to the glory that it's, it, it was always meant to be. Sorry, I'm going to need tissues, I think. <laughs> so, no, 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 I, um, I was joking, Shane. <laughs> So this morning I want to title what I'm going to be sharing. I want to title it B. B-E, not B-E-E, just B-E. <laughs> Probably one of the shortest titles you can give to, to a message. I think there could be one shorter, which is I, but I think doctrinally that might be a problem. <laughs> so, um, and I'm going to need to put my glasses on, otherwise it's going to be a very short word. So I think the best place to start is, is right at the beginning, the book of Genesis and in the book of Genesis, we see that uh, God the Father, he gives instructions and he says, let there be light. And he says, let there be sky and let there be sun and moon. 
And by him declaring those words, those words in themselves have enough power to manifest whatever his, his command is. And so we see the universe expanding at the speed of light in all directions because God the Father has commanded be. Then in, um, in Genesis chapter three, um, he creates man and woman and he, and he creates them in his own likeness and in his own image, he creates them. And for a period of time in this blissful paradise, there is perfect unity, there is perfect intimacy, there is a harmony that is just, it can only be God-ordained. And there is this intimacy, this communion that is taking place between, the, between Adam and God, and they walk together and they, they talk, and it's almost like there is this mesh, almost like what we experienced this morning in worship this morning, there is this, such a close connection between our hearts and his hearts. We feel so close. We feel so alive. I suppose more alive than we could ever feel. And so there's this, and this is God's original intention for mankind, is that we walk in this unbroken fellowship, that we walk confident sons and daughters in his presence. And when I use sons and sonship, I mean sons and daughters. So, And as the Lord commands the word be, like he even commands to Adam and Eve, and he says, be fruitful and multiply. And as he speaks that, that power is received by Adam and Eve, and they have the ability to be fruitful and multiply. And obviously there is a portion that they have to do as well in order to be fruitful and multiply. But the Lord has spoken this, and that is where the power comes from. Much like in Isaiah 55, where, um, where it says that, the words that the Lord speaks, they will not return empty or void, but they will accomplish every single thing that they were, test, were destined and tasked to do. Like when he said, let there be light, creation had no choice but to give light. When he said, let there be sun and moon, there was no choice at hatchet because those words in themselves that he speaks carries the power to fulfill whatever the instruction is. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve, and we have the serpent entering the garden, and this, it says that the serpent, serpent was cunning and more crafty than any others, and the root meaning of that word is the Hebrew word to make naked in a shameful way. And the serpent goes up to Eve, and he says to Eve, did the Lord really say you can't eat from this? And Eve is Pretty resolute. No, the Lord said that. We can't do that because on the day that we eat of that fruit, we will surely die. So the first avenue didn't work. So the serpent comes with another way and he says, well, actually the Lord doesn't want you to eat of that tree because he knows in the day that you eat of that fruit, you will become like him. And so his strategy here is to almost undermine, first of all, the relationship, almost to bring doubt as to the goodness of God to them, because actually God's got an agenda. He's actually saying, you shouldn't do this, because if you do this, you're gonna become like him. And he's a bit jealous, he's a bit insecure, he doesn't wanna have competition. And so we know the rest of the story, Adam and Eve decide to go. But the other thing that I also want to bring out is that he also undermined their identity, because them being created in the image and the likeness of God was no longer enough. He put before them the carrot, but you can be like God. And so, as a result, he brought performance. 
He brought performance onto Adam and Eve. Because if I do this, I will be like this. I am no longer content in who I am. I'm no longer happy with that which I'm experiencing. Now, I need to do something to be more. And so sin enters the world, and we've been suffering the consequences of that forever. And there are two components to the sin that I want to highlight this morning. The first one is, is uh, insecurity. Because immediately there was an insecurity in their relationship with God because they hid from him. When the Lord came into the garden, they hid from him. And he said, Adam, where are you? Not that he didn't know. He knew where they were, but he wanted Adam to be honest. And Adam said, no, I was afraid because he knows that he betrayed the Lord. And so there was this insecurity in the relationship with God the Father, but also an insecurity about themselves because they were now no longer good enough. You know, the root word of that, um, to be secure, is to fasten. Like if I, um, I, I am fortunate enough to have a Zimbabwean father-in-law who over-engineers anything. So when I hang a painting, he will come with a drill bit this size, and he will drill it into the wall. And if we have an earthquake, the wall will fall, but the painting will not. But, so the definition of secure is not going to move. And it was always the Lord's intention for us to be secure in our relationship with Him. That you can't be swayed this way or swayed this way. But the enemy comes and he says, you need to do something. And by doing that, suddenly the whole thing just crumbled. The second thing that um, I want to highlight as, an, as a, a fruit of the sin is, is shame. Because Adam and Eve hid themselves. Suddenly they became aware of how naked they were. And um, scholars, scholars believe taking scripture from um, Psalms where it says, you clothe them in glory and splendor, talking about man, saying that they, they almost had this radiance upon them, the radiance of God, much like Moses had when he came down from the mountain. And so they were not aware of their nakedness. They were not aware of shame or anything like that. But now that glory had departed from them and now they needed to find another way to cover up their nakedness. And so they decide to make fig leaves. And I put to you that this is the first time that they ever used vegan clothing. <laughs> and I think, you know, um, this type of fig tree living has, has almost infiltrated society and life. Um, you know, we, um, in a modern context, we, we try and hide behind things like, <laughs> last night at half past 10, I was thinking about the sermon, I'm thinking, Lord, I need you. I've got things to say, but unless you pitch, unless you are here, I'm going to be exposed. And, you know, I was, I was getting, you know, it's almost like the harder you try, the less you get it, the less you get it. And I thought, no, I'm going to bed. And I went to bed and this morning I got up and I just felt the Holy Spirit. And when I walked in, I just felt the Holy Spirit. And this is the best way to do life. It's not about me. It's not about what I can put together. It's about him. It's almost like we are the logs. And if the fire comes, my word, are we going to have a party? But otherwise, we just got logs. <laughs> the last person to leave switch off the lights you know it's nothing there's nothing really there but this fig tree living I think has infiltrated our life and 
we use a number of different things to cover up our shame. You know, we might use our career, we might use how much money we have, how good looking we are, how successful we are. We use a lot of things to cover up and we, we almost um, also use fig leaves to just keep each other at a distance because I don't really want to allow you close enough that you can see my vulnerability, you can see who I am because I'm a little bit ashamed of who I am. And then we see, if we move forward a little bit in Matthew chapter four, we have where Jesus gets baptized and as he comes up out of the water, you hear the father proclaim over him, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He proclaims identity, security, you're my son. This is before Jesus did any miracles. He didn't earn anything for this. And let me tell you, he was man like you and I was man. He was man. But God speaks over to him, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So he speaks identity, sonship. And then he speaks approval and acceptance. In whom I am well pleased. He's done nothing, but he is well pleased in his son. And from that moment, Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where our old friend the devil comes and after 40 days of fasting, he comes to Jesus when he's at his absolute weakest and he says, again, he tries a similar tactic to what he did in the garden. And he says, if you are the son of God, challenging identity, challenging the security of identity. If you are the son of God, you're hungry, make these stones into bread. Perform. He's coming with performance. But Jesus is secure in his, in his identity and he says, no, he, he quotes scripture, he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so Jesus comes to almost undo everything that first Adam broke in his decisions. But that doesn't mean that performance and the, the wiles of the enemy have stopped. He still tries. You know, he'll come to you and he'll say to you, you're not good enough, you know. The reason why God didn't answer your prayer was because you didn't pray enough. You didn't do enough. You're not holy enough. You know, actually, you deserve what you've got right now because this and this and this, why didn't you do this if you had done this? And he just continually undermines he undermines our identity. He undermines our relationship with the Father. You know, I could, be, I could be standing here and I could be, as I'm bringing this word, there could be two people in the corner there and they could be like whispering to each other and pointing fingers and smiling. And, you know, in my insecurity, I could almost come to the conclusion, but they are here to disrupt and to belittle me. But maybe they've been praying for years and suddenly they're Jacques. And... <laughs> They can't wait to give Jacques $10 million because they've been praying and the Lord has given them. I'm not sure all of that is true, but, but can you see how we can quite easily, just by our insecurity, interpret somebody else's good actions and good nature and good heart towards us as something that's actually meant to break us down? Even in, in, um, even in religion, now I don't like to call... Um, kingdom living, let me call it that. I don't like to call it religion because religion implies duty, um, rituals, doing certain things. Um, and I, and, I, and I, I believe like what we are experiencing, kingdom living, to be a relationship. It's real. 
It's me and, and the creator of the universe, and I don't need to do anything, but there's a living relationship. It's not based on performance. It's not based on doing. But even religion, or even in the church, we can have fig leaves, you know, fig leaves, where, you know, I, I'm such a good preacher, you know, and, and that's something that I hide behind because, you know, I can make you laugh, you know, and, and, you know, I've got some really wise words. I can tell you what it means in the Greek, and I can hide behind that. And so we can almost use anything, but it was never God's design for us to live behind fig leaves. It was always his design and purpose for us to live in his glory, to live covered by his presence, to live covered and saturated in union with him and dependent on him, not on our performance. You see, performance is a substitute. It's where I now get into the position where I'm trying to be God and I'm trying my best to hold on to everything. And to the extent that I can is maybe to the extent that I can generate some good. But if I would just, rely, just let go and rely, I now have, have access to wells of power and wells of wisdom that I could never have dreamt of. But thanks be to God sent Jesus in the fullness of time, the second Adam. The Bible talks about a first Adam and a second Adam, and the first Adam was obviously Adam in the garden, and Jesus was the, was the second Adam that came, and he basically came to undo everything that first Adam broke. And I want to read just a scripture from, and now my phone doesn't want to open, and this is a problem. You know, I've got, my, I've got all my things printed out and okay, sorry guys, this has never ever happened. It's a greater opportunity, okay, it's open, wonderful, thank you Phil. So in Romans 5, it says, When Adam sinned, the entire world was affected. Sin entered the human experience, and death was the result. And so death followed the sin, casting its shadow over all humanity, because all have sinned. Sin was in the world before Moses gave the written law, but it was not changed against them where there was no law. First man, Adam, was a picture of the Messiah who was to come. Now, there is no comparison between Adam's transgression and the gracious gift that we experience. For the magnitude of the gift far outweighs the crime. It's true that many died because of one man's transgression, this first Adam, but how much greater will God's grace and his gracious gift of acceptance overflow to many because of what one man, Jesus, the Messiah, did for us? And this free-flowing gift imparts to us much more than what was given to us through the one man who sinned. Because of one transgression, we are all facing a death, sentence with a, a death sentence with the verdict of guilty. But this gracious gift leaves us free from our many failures and brings us into the perfect righteousness of God, acquitted with the words, not guilty. You know, I just, I love reading scripture because as we read scripture, it just brings things alive in us, things that God has always spoken over us. And it's in times of difficulty that it's very easy for us to forget what the Lord is saying about us. But here he says, 
Jesus came into the world to undo the guilty verdict that was hanging over your life and my life. And now the verdict over our lives is not guilty and there is no finger that can be pointed to any of us because the debt has been paid in full. It has been paid in full. And if we feel that there is a debt still outstanding, we are in essence saying that the cross is not enough. That there is something bigger than the cross. And so therefore it's okay for you to say that I am this or I have failed here. And so this cancels and silences the words of the enemy. You see, this kingdom is not, um, this kingdom is not about achieving. The secular world is all about achieving. If you work hard enough, you're gonna get the promotion. If you prove yourself well enough, well enough. if you run fast enough, you can get, the world is all about achieving, but the kingdom is not about achieving. The, chi- the kingdom is about receiving. You know, when we come into the kingdom, it says that, the, that um, by, by grace we are saved, through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And we come into the kingdom and we graciously accept or we freely accept this gift. But then we start feeling now, but I need to do something now. This gift is too good. I need to do something for it. And so we start putting a yoke of performance on us again and a yoke of I have to and, I, and, and, and I'm not good enough. By, by us wanting to do anything for it, we show that we are insecure sons and daughters because a son, a son knows he's a son by virtue of the fact that he's a son. He is, by birth, he is a son, and nothing can change that. Yes, in a modern context, a father might, might disown a son for whatever, but that's not the heart of our father. We are in, we are in fellowship with him. We are sons and daughters, and we need not be insecure in any way. In Mark 22, uh, sorry, Mark 2 verse 22, Jesus Jesus tells the story of the, uh, the wineskins and he says you can't put new wine into an old wineskin because this was the Mediterranean climate, was pretty warm, they didn't have refrigeration and any juice that you kept for longer than a day would start fermenting. And so if you had to take, so what they would do is they would take, they would take wine and they would put it into new wine into a new wineskin because they knew the new wineskin could absorb the fermentation, the pressure that would build up and it would stretch in accordance with what that is. But if you had to take new wine and put that into an old wineskin that's already expanded to its maximum, that thing's going to explode. And I really feel that what the Lord is wanting to restore to the church is, is that we discard this old wineskin, the old wineskin of the law in essence because the law is going to tell me that I'm wrong. The law is going to tell me that I need to do more. The law is going to make me insecure and in essence the law was sent almost as a teacher to show us the way that we cannot get, to our, we cannot get there ourselves. We can only get there through Jesus. You know, it's a bit like a chair. I can say that if I sit on that chair, that chair is going to hold me up and I can tell you guys that I believe that that chair can hold me up but until I sit in that chair, I will never know. And I believe that the Lord is coming, is asking us to let go of convention, to let go of the things that we've always held on and to say, Lord, here I am, I'm falling. I'm gonna do, I'm just gonna allow myself for you to take me. I'm gonna set sail. I'm gonna start embarking on new journeys because I I wanna know what it feels like if I sit in that chair, that that chair holds me up. This morning, I feel like that chair is holding me up. I feel it. I know that the Lord is here. I know that the Lord is speaking. 
And that is the life that he wants us to have because the old wineskin is all about what I can do. It's about what I can, you know, in, under the law, um, the children of Israel would come to, the, come to the priest and they would have to bring sacrifices and they would continually have to bring sacrifices and the, and the very purpose of the law was to show them that they would never be able to pay enough. But Jesus came in the fullness of time and paid everything. And now I can rely on that. So that when somebody points a finger at me or the enemy comes and says, but Jacques, you're not enough. You can't do this. I don't stand on my own because I choose to be dependent on him. I choose to rely on him. I saw a really interesting video. I don't have this in, my, in what I want to say, but this guy, he, he wanted to show the effects of grace. And he, was, he had a, um, a staircase, and right next to it he had a trampoline. And he would walk up, and he would fall, and he would lean into the trampoline, and he would jump up to the next thing. And he would fall, and he would lean into this thing, and then he would lean into a bit more. He would go up to the third one, and the fourth one, and the fifth one. And he was actually climbing the staircase by falling. Because every single time he fell, he just leaned more into the trampoline. You almost put more weight into this because the more weight you put into it, the higher you go. And I think grace is such a beautiful picture of that. It's like, you know, we, we're not perfect in our actions. We are perfect in who we are in the new creation. But we're not always perfect in our actions. But when we do... We just lean more into the Holy Spirit and he pushes us us up even higher. And this is what I believe is what the Lord is wanting to establish in the earth. This is the new wineskin. I really believe this is it. He can pour out his power into something like that because it's not based on human effort. It's not based on pride. You know, the thing is like that, that wineskin, that old wineskin, if the power gets in there, this fermentation starts, the pressure starts building up. It's either gonna blow up It's going to cause me to be prideful because, wow, did you just see what God just did through me? Because it's based on me. It's not based on God. It's not, I'm not surrendered. I'm not dependent. In John 15, 15, uh, before I get there. In Romans 7, um, Paul basically compares the law to the old husband, to an old husband. So we were married to this old husband, an old overbearing husband that would keep on telling you where you've messed up. He will never tell you anything good. He will just tell you, ooh, you you messed up there big time. You did this wrong. Ooh, you didn't do enough of this. You didn't, and that was what the law was like. Sounds a lot, uh, very similar to the serpent and to the devil in the wilderness, doesn't it? And so he, so this old husband was designed to tell you how, where you fell short. But in Romans 7, it says that we were married to this, this uh, overbearing husband. And, but when we received him, Jesus put to death the law. The law has no right over us. And now we are married to a new husband. And the new husband speaks very tenderly over us, like we, like we sang this morning. Come with me. Come romance me. You have, you have eyes like a, like a dove. He, he, he dotes on us. And so this is the new husband. The new husband speaks good things over us. But we are now, now the old husband is dead, but we still hear the voice of the old husband. While we're with the new husband, we still hear, oh, I messed up, messed up there. And now it becomes a big thing. But actually, it's not a big thing. You know, repentance is not a big thing. Flagellation, oh, I need to just mope around for whatever. I need to show how contrite I am. Actually, repentance, 
literally, the word, the, 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 there are two meanings for repentance. One is to, when you encounter the truth, you change your direction. And the second one is to come higher. And this is the one thing I think that religion gets wrong. Because in religion, you start at the bottom. You start insecure. I've got to prove myself. I'm a new Hindu. And I now need to do this and do this and do this and to climb the ladder. And when, as I do more and more, I get higher and higher and higher. And maybe this God will look upon me with approval and say, okay, great, you've made it. But the kingdom is not like that. The kingdom is on its head. You start in pole position because of what, if G, what Jesus has done. You know, repentance is where he says, come higher. And we've quoted the scripture in, in, uh, in from this pulpit many times, we are seated with him in heavenly places. He doesn't have a problem to say, come, sit here. We don't have to prove anything. We don't have to because he did it all for us. And that is the thing that brings liberty and freedom. It sets us free from anxiety and stress because, you know, a tree can only produce after its own kind. And if I sow out of anxiety, I'm just going to reach, just reap more, more anxiety. Or if I, if I sow out of righteousness, peace, and joy, which it says the kingdom of God is, I'm going to reap more righteousness, peace, peace, and joy. And so a couple of... Um, a couple of weeks ago, we had a, a little gospel evening and some of you were there and I just wanted to go over some of those things. You know, if I had to say to you, um, you are a sinner saved by grace, it sounds pretty good because actually I was a sinner and I was saved by grace. So there's an element of truth to that. And, um, and, and you know, you could almost fit a couple of things. You know, I need to work up my salvation with fear and trembling and I need to be holy. And, I, and, and so, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner, but I'm now saved by grace. And, and it sounds a bit like a, a refurb to me. It doesn't sound like a new thing. It sounds like you were this and now you're a little bit better. You know, you, you've been saved by grace, but we're gonna just try a little bit harder and whatever. And, and there is an element of truth that we are sinners saved by grace. But, you know, in the New Testament, Whenever any of the, the New Testament writers refer to the church uh, as individuals, they never, ever use the word sinner. They never, ever use that word. They use the word saint. And that word is the Greek word hagios. Um, and that word means most holy. So whenever the New Testament writers write about you and me, they write the most holy ones. They never, ever say sinner. And the, and the, and the reason why it is so important is because it's my identity. If my identity, if I see myself as a sinner, I see myself as a, bad, as a bad tree, and that every now and again, because I try really hard, I produce some good fruit. But if I see myself as a sinner, that the work of the cross is a complete work, I see myself as a good tree. And yes, every now and again, I might pop out a bad one, but I am a good tree, and I produce good, good fruit. And that's what he speaks over. That word hagios, and interestingly enough, is also the word used to describe the Holy Spirit the most holy spirit of God. We are, we are described as most holy alongside with that holy spirit. I'm not saying we're God, but I'm saying that we have the holy spirit inside of us. We have that power inside of us. We have that holiness inside of us. We are joined with him. There is nothing that can separate us from him. We are joined with him. And so we are most holy regardless of what we do. I don't want to get involved in the discussion of, but are we using grace as a license, does that mean I can do anything? That's a separate conversation, but I would just want to say this, that if we feel like that, if we feel that we can go and do anything, in Romans, I think it's chapter five, it says you don't understand grace then, because if you understand grace, you will know what this gift means, and you will surrender everything for it. 
And so if I'm a saint, it means that I'm in this union of John chapter 16 where he is the vine and I'm the branches. I'm intertwined with him and I produce good fruit, not because of performance, not because I have to, but I just produce good fruit because I'm, I'm new, I'm his. I'm connected with him. You know, the new creation that it talks about in um, uh, 1 Corinthians 5 or 2 Corinthians 5, it says that at a moment in time, you became of a new substance. There's a specific time. You were this before, but now at this moment when you receive Jesus, you become a different substance. It's not a refurb. It's not a retread. It's not a, you know, we've just covered it with a new lacquer of paint. It's a brand new thing a substance that did not exist before. Romans 8.19 is one of our favorite scriptures that we, that we use in it. And it, Romans 8.19 says that all of creation is groaning and waiting for the revelation of the sons and daughters of God. You know, we, we carry his DNA and we were designed much like the commandment that, that uh, God gave Adam, he said, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. That is actually, that Adamic uh, mandate is actually our, mandam, uh, our mandate as well. You know, when we get to end time or eschatological um, prophecy and whatever, there are some things I can't understand that I can't give you an answer for, but I choose to have a hopeful eschatology because I know that he says, in the latter days, he will pour out his spirit on all flesh. There are, a, there are a couple of things. I'm going to share just now another thing as well that I believe is almost like he's raising up his sons and daughters like in this Romans 8:19, where we start standing secure in who we are and reformation and transformation starts radiating across the earth because of what he has put in us. But we need the new wineskin. It cannot be based on effort. It cannot be based on how good I am or how not good I am. In 1 Corinthians 4:20. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and interestingly enough, this Corinthian church is like a mess. It's an absolute mess. When they have communion, it's real wine, and it's a drunken party. It is, they do things with temple prostitutes. It's really not a good, <laughs> a good, um, a good situation. But he still speaks to them as saints. And he says in 1 Corinthians 4.20, he says, the kingdom of God is not just in word, it's in power. And I feel like the power, yes, we have seen miracles. I have seen miracles. I have seen somebody's leg grow. I have seen in Azusa Street, somebody's arm had an industrial accident and his arm was chopped off and they prayed for him and right there, his arm grew back. We do see aspects of that, but I do feel that there is power missing from the modern day church and I believe that this is what the Lord is wanting to put into the modern day church because I might be a bit um, hung up on power but when I see Jesus, he goes into Samaria and he sits down with a woman. And right there, God gives him insight into this woman's life. And as a result, she starts becoming wowed that he can tell her her life story. And she goes into the city and the whole city come to know Jesus. Jesus would often do a miracle. And I'm not saying it's always about that. The Holy, Holy Spirit works in different ways. He doesn't always just work. But I feel like this is something that is missing from the, from the church. Now, if I had to say to you this morning that you as an individual are greater than the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, it would sound ridiculous. How can that be? How can I be greater than the greatest prophet in the Old Testament? Moses stretching out his staff and the Red Sea parting. My word, what a demonstration that is. God must really be on his side if he's doing that. That these 
the children of Israel are able to walk through, not in mud, but on dry ground through the other side, or an Elijah calling down fire, destroying all of these sacrifices that were put down. But you know, in Matthew 11, 11, it says, Jesus is standing and he's talking to his disciples and he says, have you seen John the Baptist? There's no greater, greater prophet ever. There's no greater prophet than John the Baptist. And then he says something profound. He says, but whoever is least in the kingdom of God is greater than him. He's in essence saying that the new creation has got more power, is greater than, than pre-Jesus' greatest prophet. Because that is who we are. That is what we've got. And that is what the Lord wants to release on this earth. He wants to release his sons and daughters to bring back creation to what it was meant to be. I want to read uh, 1 Corinthians 2. Um, I think it's verse 6 to 13. And it says, this is why the scripture says, things never discovered or heard of before, things beyond our ability to imagine, these are the many things God has in store for all his lovers. But God now unveils these profound realities to, to us by his spirit. Yes, he has revealed to us his inmost heart and deepest mysteries through the Holy Spirit who constantly explores all things. After all, who can really see into a person's heart and know his hidden impulses except for that person's spirit? So it is with God. His thoughts and secrets are only fully understood by his spirit, the spirit of God. For we did not receive the spirit of this world's system, but the spirit of God, so that we might come to understand and experience all that grace has lavished upon us. Absolutely incredible. We cannot imagine the things that he has for us. We cannot imagine. If we have more access to kingdom than the greatest Old Testament prophets, can we imagine big enough? Because that is what he wants to bring. But the second part of that scripture is, we can't imagine it, but we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit knows the heart of God. His, in, his intermost, most intimate thoughts. He knows those and he shares those with us. And this is the restoration of the secure sonship that he's wanting to establish in our hearts. We're all on a journey. Yes, we don't, we don't always have this intimate fellowship. There are times when you wake up and you feel ooh, fear and anxiety. And what about tomorrow? But it's an invitation for us to draw into him, to just lean more into that trampoline. Because in that time, he can then start giving us his secrets, the secret words that unlock people's hearts, that unlock our hearts, that bring about his kingdom. And going back to Isaiah 55, just on the theme of his thoughts and his words that he speaks, and in Isaiah 55, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. But we have the Holy Spirit, and now we have access to them. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but, the wa but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give, give, give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. Again, it's almost like a picture of, of God in the, in the beginning of creation saying, let there be light. Let there be sun and moon. 
because his words carry so much power, they have the ability to fulfill whatever the commandment is. But it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the very thing that I... um, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Now here, I believe the second part of this verse describes his heart for us, having the Holy Spirit here, secure in relationship, depending on him. And it says, for you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. And the mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. As we get more in tune with the new wineskin, depending on him, not depending on me, having this intimate, unbroken fellowship with him, the mountains and the hills will break off before you and there'll be shouts of joy and there will be this outbreaking of the kingdom. I think that is a, an accurate description of what the kingdom is all about. And so getting back to the words that God speaks, you know, when Jesus prayed for people, he said, be healed. He didn't say, Lord, please would you heal this person? He said, be healed. Like God commanded, let there be light. You know, even when we, when we look at the transformation in Hebrews 12, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of a mind. We often make it about us because I need to be trans- I need to renew my mind. That's our favorite saying. I need to renew my mind. I don't need to renew my mind. I need to be transformed. The verb there is be transformed. The renewing of the mind describes the transformation. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So actually, getting back to us receiving and not achieving, it's more about me hearing his voice, more about me hearing what he says about me and me then being transformed because when the words that he speaks to me has the power to transform me, I just need to find a place in my heart for it. And as I do and as as the Holy Spirit works to make this word mine, I am transformed. But be is the verb, not renewing our mind. Because we like to, you know, when I first first got saved, I I grew up in a very performance-driven Environment, and, and I always needed to prove myself. I needed to be the best at cricket. I needed to be the best at academics. I needed to, I needed to, I needed to. Because if I did enough of that, if I could muster enough fig leaves, I was worthy. But he takes away all of that. There's no performance required. You know, when he says, be, I just need to receive. It's a love relationship with him where he, I respond to what he says. Bill Johnson says, I can't afford not to think the thoughts that he has about me. I cannot. Because what is the alternative? The alternative is the serpent, the devil, the old husband. But I need to hear what he says about me. And to the extent that I'm able to take that is to the extent that I'm going to start flourishing and producing more and more good fruit. And so finally, I want to end off just with, um, you know, often when we, we've got a, I think all of these Uh, crafty actors in the history of mankind have successfully changed the definition of grace to some extent. Because if I had to say to you this morning, you know, I've fallen from grace, you will think, oh, what did Jacques do? You know, 
Is he like a, a preacher that had an illicit affair? Or did he steal money? What did he do? He fell from grace. He, grace was up here, and now he's here. But if you look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 4, and I just want to end off with this. Galatians chapter 5, verse 4. So Paul is writing... Paul is writing to the Galatian church. These guys are a body of believers. And if I compare them to the Corinthian church, let me tell you, their lives were squeaky clean compared to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. But he seems to have harsher words for the Galatians because he says in Galatians chapter 5, indeed, so a little bit of context. So they, they got saved, but there were these, this group of people called the Judaizers who used to follow Paul. And their main mission was to, as New believers or people got, became convert, converts and they had a living relationship with Jesus. They would follow and they would try and bring aspects of the law. Like you need to be circumcised. Yes, you're a new creation, blah, blah, blah. But there's still some things that you've got to do. You've got to be circumcised. Otherwise, you're not fulfilling everything that he wants to. And these people almost plagued Paul. They followed him around everywhere. And he got very frustrated with them sometimes. I mean, he said some things about them that, you know, were not all nice. And... Um, and here Paul writes, and he's writing to the Corinthians who seem to have fallen into a bit of this works Christianity. And he says, indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised or if you try and do things to help out your salvation, Christ will profit you nothing. You have become estranged from Christ. Because if you're trying to do it in works, you're basically saying that the cross is not enough. And so actually, I'm doing this on my own. And, the, and you know, the Lord is a gentleman. He's not going to force himself on you. He's just going to sit back until you come to your senses or until you encounter the truth and you come back again. And he says, you have become estranged from Christ. You attempt to be justified by the law, justified by your works, justified by how much you pray, even good things. You know, how much you give to the church, how much you give, whatever it is. You have fallen from grace, he says. That is the true definition of falling from grace. You know, sometimes the, the, the enemy would want us to believe that you fall from grace when you mess up. No, actually, you fall from grace when you don't rely on Him. That's really the true definition of grace. And this is the new wineskin that God wants us. He wants us to become more dependent on Him, to rely more on Him and less on our ability. You know, he, um, the picture that, that Scripture has of us as believers is that we are almost like leaves blown by the wind. The wind blows and there we go. And the wind blows there and there we go. We're sitting in a coffee shop and the Lord says... I want you to say something there. We are, we are spontaneous. We are not this rigid, pre-planned, um, one-click worship band. That's not who we are. we are. We are like clay in His hand. And you can, I want you to be this now. I want you to be this now. But falling from grace, I think, is such a wonderful picture that it's not about what you do wrong. It's about us not relying on Him. And that's why Paul had harsher words for the Galatian church than he did for the Corinthians, who were an absolute mess. And so I, I just want to end off with, uh, with a couple of words, you know, where the word be is used, you know. This morning, speaking to Sean. So Sean has got uh, a cancer that he needs to go um, for an operation. They're going to remove a portion of his stomach. And it's really going to impact the way that he lives life. And, um, but this morning, I just want to declare, be healed in Jesus' name. It's not about me. It's not about the words that I speak. I speak his words in Jesus' name. 
And that word, be, has got all the power to create universes. And it's got the power to kill that thing. And so I say, be healed in Jesus' name. You know, when the, when the, when, uh, the Bible says, be holy, even as I'm holy, when he says, be holy, he, there, in that word, there is enough power for us to be holy. We don't have to try and be holy. I don't have to try and be a good tree. I am a good tree. You know, when he says, be transformed, the power is in that word. And so it's more about us relinquishing and not listening to the serpent and saying, but if I do this, I can be like him. It's about me being secure in who I am. I am a son and a daughter. In John 15, 15, uh, Jesus says, I know, I've never called you servants. I've never called you slaves. I call you sons. I call you friends. Because a servant doesn't know what his master's doing. But a, but a friend, he hears the innermost intimate thoughts of his friend. And that's what the Holy Spirit is in us for. Is he's here to give us his inner, intimate, most, most intimate thoughts. So that we can start living lives that we could never have dreamt of. And so can we stand up? Um, just as we, as we bring things to a close. Lord, we stand in your presence with our five loaves and our two fishes. It's so woefully inadequate, Lord. But we know, Lord, that when we give you these five loaves and these two fishes, you can do so much. And Lord, Holy Spirit, I pray you're our teacher, you're our comforter, that you would just help us to relinquish self-effort. To say goodbye to our, our, the, what, we can, what we can conjure up. We want to leave those shores, Lord, and we want to ask, Holy Spirit, will you take us on a journey where we lean into this trampoline? Where we lean on you more and more and more. Where this starts a chain reaction, Father, because it's, not now, it's no longer dependent on us. It's no longer dependent on what we can do, on our efforts, how good or how bad we are. But it's everything about the cross. It's everything about what you have done. Lord, will you make this real, Lord God? Lord, we want to live lives that are exciting and powerful and, and extending the kingdom, Lord God, life-changing, Lord God, taking people and putting them into their true inheritance, Lord. This is our heart, Lord. Lord, will you just start working with us, Lord? Will you just start shaping us? Will you start just preparing this, this wineskin, Lord, that we no longer see ourselves as sinners, Lord God? Lord, what an old way of thinking, Lord God. But Lord, that we would see ourselves as most holy, most holy, righteous, the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Amen.